I'm thankful for the um, the sharing that all gave on today. Can we just applaud together those who spoke, shared stories, <laughs> led small groups? It's been an amazing day, and I'm I'm even more in um, in touch with the fact that uh, this is a community of sacred people who are doing sacred work in so many different ways. Um, so many who are in ministry, whether you have that title or not, I'm not looking, uh, but those who are engaged in a powerful ministries in their communities. There's wisdom all around us, and I'm just really appreciative of that. I'm also uh, thankful uh, because uh, last night, y'all know I had my timer um, to help to um, keep in check my, my Baptist inclinations um, to just go for it. And I'm, I was so excited when I finished the sermon last night. I said it for 20 minutes. They told me 10 to 20 minutes. And in the, my tradition, uh, that's a devotional. That ain't no sermon. You, you, just, you ain't preach, Reverend. You just introduced yourself. Amen. But uh, I, I'm grateful that when I finished last night, I had two minutes and 30 seconds left. Uh, at the end of the sermon, and so I'm going to add that to tonight's message. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how it goes. We'll see, but I'm going to bring over the balance of my time. I'm reclaiming my time. Um, <laughs> um, I want to share tonight from um, the gospel uh, penned by Mark, chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 30 through 42. It's a story you may have heard before in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 30 through 42. And it is so beautiful to be worshiping out here in this dynamic space tonight. Isn't it beautiful? Mark, Mark chapter 6. Mark 6, verse 30 through 42. The story you may have heard before. If not, it's a good one. Listen up. It says this. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and the hour is now very late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, are we to go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves have you go and see when they had found out they said five and two fish then he ordered them 
to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and all ate and were filled. This is the word of God. For the few moments that are mine, family, allow me to preach as you pray in the Lord in power from the theme, Redeeming Deserted Places. Redeeming Deserted Places. Friends, last year I learned of this interesting website and app. It's called Native Land. It's a site where you can put in your zip code or city and the interactive map will tell you about the area's ancestral indigenous history, the tribal connections there, and the people who once called that land their home. Chelsea Luger, member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa and Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, wrote in Yes Magazine, and I quote, you cannot find a corner of this continent that does not hold ancient history, indigenous value, and pre-colonial place names and stories. And every place we occupy was once the homeland for other people, most of whom did not leave willingly. The Native Land website is beyond helpful in the project of decolonization a posture which demands a centering of indigenous wisdom, indigenous ways of knowing, ways of being and understanding. Decolonization in our context helps us to be clear that just because it's in the West, it don't mean it's best. Uh. Just because it's white, it don't mean it's right. Uh. And just because it came from a man, it don't mean that's the plan. Yeah. <laughs> I decided to test out the website native land. It was then that I learned more about the Lenape people who once lived here. I learned that the Lenape people are the original inhabitants of what we call Delaware, New Jersey, Eastern Pennsylvania, and Southern New York. They were and are the people with a matrilineal system of governance where powerful and grand mothers were the rulers of the clan and arbiters of society. Like so many of their kin, they were forcefully removed from their land and sent west, many to Oklahoma, leaving the land that they and their ancestors had been caretakers of for over 10,000 years. Whoa. They were not only caretakers of the land, but they were also caretakers of the waterways. They lived in relationship and cared for the river of human beings. I had never heard of a body of water called the river of human beings until I studied the Lenape people. Upon further investigation though, I learned that I hadn't heard of the river of human beings because somewhere within the 1700s, European colonists renamed this body of water the Delaware River. After the first European governor of the province of Virginia, Thomas West, third Baron Delaware. It wasn't enough to remove the people from the land. 
But the project of colonization and dehumanization included changing the name of the place as well. I could find no record of Thomas Delaware even stepping foot here. But nevertheless, a body of water created by God goes from being called the river of human beings to a river honoring one European colonizer. It just goes to show that those who have the power often call things whatever they want to call them with little regard for other truths, historical accuracy, or the inherent value found in that place before other folks showed up. Yeah. You stay with me, I'm going somewhere, I promise. Yeah, yeah. Because in our text tonight, I find another place that suffers under the same weight of mischaracterization and a faulty description. In all my years of reading, hearing, and literally shouting about the miracle featured in today's text, I've never considered deeply the implications of the place where this miracle occurred. In fact, quick survey by show of hands, who's heard of this miracle story? Who's read it or heard it? of Jesus taking two fish and five loaves and the miracle of 5,000 being fed. You've heard it before. Yeah. I've long been encouraged to celebrate what happened there. Okay. Even now and I hear the parlance of black Baptist preachers in the memories of my mind describing Jesus as taking two sardines and five Ritz crackers and feeding a whole multitude. <laughs> I've long been invited to focus with amazement on how Jesus, without the aid of Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, or creative newsletters, attracted the attention of a massive crowd that was so large that they left town and beat him on foot where he was going by boat. Yeah. But what occurs to me tonight is not just what happened, but where it happened. Three different times in this pericope, the Bible describes the site, scene, and setting of this miraculous encounter as a deserted place. That's an interesting choice of adjective, deserted place. But the adjective would suggest something about this location. The adjective might imply that at some point this place used to be inhabited, this place used to hold life, but the choice of adjectives seems to want us to believe that nothing of value could be found there now. Yeah. This holds a particular resonance with me given that we are currently in a time of heightened gentrification, displacement, and dispossession. Yeah. Deserted places abound these days. That's loaded and heavy language when you call some place a deserted place. Yeah. In fact, it's close cousin and kin to the labeling that happens to human beings as well. You've heard of at-risk youth. Yeah. Instead of placing the weight where it belongs on the conditions in which the young people are raised up, conditions often brought about by racist and violent economic and political policies that are the victims of political violence, instead of naming the condition, instead we label the young person an at-risk youth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And let me just go ahead and tell the whole truth. You can get a whole lot of grant money these days if you can just show them that you're here to help the at-risk youth and everybody knows in coded language who you're talking about. You're talking about black children and that labeling can be a prison and a shackle yeah. to people who never asked to be in those, in those bonds. Yeah, Deserted place has a similar kind of weight to it. 
Deserted places abound in a society where we too easily write off certain places as unworthy, without value, and incapable of generating solutions that bubble up from within. Instead, they has a preference for solutions that are parachuted in from without. Yeah. And an example of this weight of our tendency of society to place violence upon a place is found right in the text that the conundrum in today's passage is that a massive crowd had followed Jesus to a deserted place. Yeah. Food is needed and the hour is getting late. The question of what to do arises. The disciples seeming to have a solution recommend that Jesus send the hungry masses into the towns to get food. When Jesus said, no, you feed them, the disciples said, we don't have no money. And here we get a glimpse of their mindset. Solutions are found in their mindset. Solutions are found in the city. Yeah. Solutions are found in the big metropolitan places. Solutions are found where the skyscrapers are. Yeah. Solutions are found where the subways run. Solutions are found where the foundations have their headquarters and dole out money to anybody who can write a little bit. Yeah. Solutions are not found in deserted places. Yeah. Solutions are found in the city and solutions are found in currency. Hear the disciples, hear them. They say, we don't got enough money to feed all these people. Solutions for them is found in having enough money. And once you get enough money, then you'll be able to transform conditions and solutions. But it does something deep down on the inside to me, Kendrick, yeah. because I grew up in a family only had no money. I come from Big Mama, Mama Geraldine, since we naming our Big Mamas and our family members. And my Mama Geraldine down in Kilmonic, Virginia, was famous for being able to take a little bit of nothing and create a feast out of it that would feed everybody in the house. Yeah. I looked in Mama Geraldine's refrigerator and saw almond hammer and bologna. She looked in that same refrigerator and saw a feast that would have everybody stuffed and sleep on the couch. They had a whole lot of money. But grandmama knew how to use what she already had to transform the conditions for everybody in the house. The disciples thought, if we don't have the money, we can't make a difference. And I got to put a quarter in the meter right here and put the car in park because there might be some under the sound of my voice who've also been tempted by the siren song of believing if you don't have enough money, you can't make a difference. Ah. If I could only get that grant, if, 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 if I could only get the attention of the investors in the big wigs in the city, if I, if I could only get the attention of the city council people and the governor, if, if I could only, if the media would only come and cover my community and, and my program, then I'll be able to make something work in my neighborhood. But what if, somebody say what if, what, what, what if you already have what you need to do what God is calling you to do. Yeah. What if the divine solution to your dilemma is not found in a foundations grant? What if it's not found in getting resources from downtown? But what if you already have it in your hand? The disciples came to Jesus. I got to leave my paper for a minute. I'm getting quite Baptist, but I got two minutes. Stay with me. The disciples came to Jesus and said, we 
don't have enough money. Did you hear what Jesus said in response? What do you have? Don't, don't come telling me what you don't have. Have you even done an assessment of the assets that are already in your hand? Before you go on the circuit begging people to help you do what you know God has called you to do, have you even taken a moment to take assessment and take stock of what God has already placed in your hand? That, that, that's, that's, that's what I'm learning and, uh, in helping black churches grow food on their own land through the ministry of the Black Church Food Security Network. Many of the congregations that I work with are found in places that some call food deserts. However, in Baltimore, we've moved beyond that term because of the wisdom that we've heard earlier and the wisdom shared by people like Karen Washington, co-founder of Black Urban Growers Bugs, who says, and I quote, what I would rather say instead of food desert is food apartheid. Because food apartheid looks at the whole food system along with race, geography, faith, and economics. You say food apartheid and you get to the root cause of some of the problems of the food system. It brings in hunger and poverty. It brings us to the more important questions, end quote. As we heard earlier today, we've also recognized that a desert is a naturally occurring geographic landscape. However, it's unnatural when political and corporate leaders strangle the life out of neighborhoods in part by keeping people separated from control and access to healthy food. Yeah. So instead of scapegoating deserts, I'm saying amen to what was already spoken in this space. Instead of scapegoating deserts, which focus on access, in Baltimore, we now talk about food apartheid and we center our work in black food sovereignty. Our mindset changed. And once we started to see our communities not as the deserted places that other people said they were, but as full of vibrancy and potential like we knew they were, God showed us where the life was all around us. We had people in Baltimore trying to figure out where to get land to grow food while there's 511 black churches on every corner in the city that have land and kitchens and classrooms. Once we took stock of where the autonomy and the agency was in our community, it helped us to get a whole new mindset of how to change the conditions of our community. We recognize that we had life all around us. Well, you know how the Bible story ends. Jesus collects the fish and loaves that have been gathered and blesses it, and the masses are fed. But I want to end today shouting about a different aspect of the story. The Bible says that once the food had been collected and the miracle was about to be performed, verse 39 of the text, Jesus orders the people to sit down on the green grass. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that, that's where I got happy. I got happy right there. <laughs> Before the miracle with the fish, there was evidence of life in the foliage. Yeah. For if there was grass, then there were roots. Yeah. On, and if there were roots, yeah. then there was soil. If there was soil, there were microbes. If there were microbes, there was bacteria. If there was bacteria, there was mycelium. If there was mycelium, there was water. And if there was water, there was life. Yeah. 
The disciples called this a deserted place. The biblical narrator called it a deserted place. Even Jesus called it a deserted place. But grass stands up to testify that life was here the whole time. And life did not start when y'all showed up. We were busy in the business of sustaining life long before you got here. So this might sound a little off. Maybe I was sitting in the heat too long. But when I sat out here earlier today doing our 45 minutes of silence and quiet and meditation, I started hearing sermons all around me. I was sitting right about there in the chair, honestly, about to check my phone. But before I could get to the phone, I was interrupted by the activity of the divine all around me that I had been overlooking because I was moving so fast. Once I slowed down, I began to look and study how God was active and is active all around us. I checked out the water gliders coming down on the water, doing a Holy Ghost two-step on top of the water before flying away to another space on the water. And I said, thank you, Lord. I checked out the red admiral butterfly that is known to be friendly with human contact and was on your shoulder dancing four or five, six times, gliding all around us, naming its territory and its domain. I began to look at the, the, uh, the herons in the water and watching them, and some of y'all were checking them out. They were down there in the water, walking with a regal elegance, and in a moment's notice, when it saw something that could nourish it, it would put its beak down in that mud, grab it, and keep on moving. Yes, sir. All that didn't shout me, though. God got to the climax of the sermon when the carpenter ant started going around my feet. These black carpenter ants started racing around my toes. You may have caught two or three of them right here in this walkway. It made me go back and study these ants. And when I looked and studied the ants, I learned a thing or two about these ants. I learned that these ants are farmers. (laughs) They, they, They live in that tree right there. That's their address and their home place, their place of worship and And in that tree, they chew up the wood not to eat it, but to create holes and passageways. And if we were to do an x-ray of the tree, we'd be able to see a complex system of holes where the ants live and have their life. I saw them carrying dead insects and scavenging all over the grass and taking food back to the house because Big Mama waiting inside. (laughs) I saw those ants working along the waterways and figuring out how to get over breaks in the rocks so that they could get back to where they belong. And then I learned that that these black carpenter ants are farmers. They, 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 they're farmers. They, they have aphids. And they work with the aphids in a mutual beneficial relationship because the the aphids produce a sugary substance and the black carpenter ants likes the sugary substance. And so the ant takes care of the aphid and the aphid stays near the ant because the ant gets the sugary substance and the aphids get protection from the ants. And so they learn how to work together because they recognize that between each other, they got something to help one another. They have, I read stories of the black carpenter ant 
taking the aphids eggs down into the tree during the winter time and then after winter bringing those eggs back and placing them near the foliage so that they might get what they need to flourish and while they're flourishing the ants are flourishing too ah. you got ants farming right under your feet and we think the farming area is when farming started on the land what if life has been here the whole time and we just catching up to a movie that's too late. Well, I'm getting the faces now. <laughs> it usually happens when I go this deep talking about animals. I've always been that kind of kid. But y'all got to forgive me. I might sound a little off. But the Bible I read testifies of a God who does not center divine activity through human activity alone. But the God that I serve and the Bible that I read testifies that God is in partnership with all of creation yeah, yeah. to testify to the glory of the divine. If I'm crazy talking about ants, then the Bible's crazy talking about rainbows, yeah. sending a message that God will never bring destruction the same way to the earth. If I'm crazy talking about ants, yeah. Then the Bible's crazy talking about birds bringing the prophet something to eat when the prophet Elijah was depressed and heavy in spirit. If I'm crazy, the Bible is crazy. Because the Bible testifies to birds bringing back foliage to Noah to let him know that it's time to drop anchor and walk again on dry, dry land. If I'm crazy, then the Bible is crazy. Yeah. When the moon refused to shine, yeah. when the birds refused to sing, yeah. if I'm crazy, the Bible is crazy. Yeah. When the dark sky testified to the death of Jesus, yeah. when the earth began to shake, yeah. when the rocks began to quake, yeah. if I'm crazy, the Bible is crazy yeah. because the Bible testifies that creation has its own divine relationship, yeah. that God will work and partner with the trees, with the leaves, yeah. with the grass, with the animals, and through it all, we bear witness to the greatness of our God. What if we are a part of a great chorus of creation? Not the lead singers, but participants in a divinely orchestrated choir of the cosmos testifying of the majesty yes, sir. of a God that don't even need humanity to hear echoes of God's divinity. What if we get too up, uptight and dignified that we don't want to praise the Lord? Yeah. But the Bible testifies that if you ever shut your mouth, the Bible says the very rocks will cry out and they'll testify to the goodness of, I feel Baptist, let me sit down. But I just got to say, if I'm crazy, the Bible is crazy. Because the Bible shows us that God will take places that we call deserted places and make it the site of divine intervention and miraculous discovery. Can I invite you? Keep your eyes open. Because God is at work all around us. Amen. 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 Bless you, Ray. Bless you. Bless you. Thank you for your praise. Amen.
Worship is uh, is intimacy. And I want to acknowledge that the farther along we go in this journey together, the worship is going deeper and deeper into layers of intimacy that I'm naming that was distinct from where we started. There's a bonding and a deeper level that's happening and I thank God for that. And I thank God for you. Before I begin tonight, I want to thank you for, um, thank you for embracing my authentic self. I'm a black Baptist preacher yes, sir. from Pleasant Hope Baptist Church and in Baltimore. And I'm grateful that I've grown to the place where I don't try to be nobody else. I am who I am. And when I'm invited to come preach, I'm expecting, I'm anticipating that the people want me to be who I am. And I thank you for your embrace of my authentic self in the preaching moment. And I want to acknowledge and just appreciate the diversity of backgrounds, the diversity of experiences when it comes to God and scripture and church. I want to acknowledge that as a part of this group as well. And I'm appreciative of the beautiful distinctions of this group too. Even in the preaching moment, I appreciate the beautiful distinctions of this group. Family, tonight, I intend to make some trouble. You already said amen to embracing my authentic self. So it's too late to take it back. We got some work to do tonight. The work tonight takes us to the very first book of our Holy Scriptures, the book of Genesis. Chapter 47, Genesis chapter 47, starting at verse 13, Genesis chapter 47, starting at verse 13. And I think uh, I'm going to end at verse 25. I, um, this sermon has been working on me and it's still working. It's not done yet. Um, so we'll see. Because I was going back and forth about this being a presentation or a Bible study or a sermon. So it's going to be spiritual gumbo tonight and we'll see what comes out of it. And we'll preach and teach. We might do some, some small group discussions as well around this text. Because I don't want to speed past it. So Genesis 47, chapter 13. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 47, verses 13 through 25. I got my cell phone, um, but I think we're close enough now where I can put my phone away and, uh, and just preach what the Lord has given tonight. Here's what the scripture says. Check this out. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. The land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money to be found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. When the money from the land of Egypt 
and from the land of Canaan was spent, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give me your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds and the donkeys. That year he supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we cannot hide from my Lord that our money is all spent and the herds of cattle are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Shall we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land in exchange for food. We with our land will become slaves to Pharaoh. Just give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. All the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe upon them, and the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made slaves of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy. For the priest had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, now that I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh, here is seed for you, sow the land. And at the harvest, you shall give one fifth to Pharaoh and four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. They said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be slaves to Pharaoh. Family, for a few moments tonight, can I talk a little bit about the other Joseph story? Come on. The other Joseph story. Sisters and brothers, within the context of her dynamic presentation shared earlier today, we heard Dr. Monica White mention wisdom that springs from another dynamic woman. Nigerian novelist Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Sister Adichie in a July 2009 TED Talk spoke of the danger of a single story. She spoke about how the telling of the single story is really about power. How stories are told, who tells them, how many are told, etc., are really dependent on who's in power. I remember this uh, proverb that speaks deeply to me that says, until lions have historians, hunters will be heroes. Speaks about the significance of those in power to further the story or the version of a story that they claim to be most significant. Adichie says that power is the ability not just to tell the story of another person, but to make it the definitive story of that person or those persons. Uh -huh. 
We can become blinded to other aspects of a person or people groups and sometimes even unknowingly buy into the powerful's perspective when we only focus on the single story. This can be particularly difficult and sharp advisement for many Christians and Christian denominations who as part of their spiritual formation programs further a singular way of understanding God and mediating meaning from our sacred scriptures. For example, if you grew up in a Sunday school like I did, then you'll know that many of us were conditioned toward the single story of the Bible and single stories of the people in the Bible. Because of our religious conditioning, we can sometimes be found guilty of typecasting biblical characters within rigid confines of a single story because their imprisonment to a singular perspective serves our purposes, even if it doesn't honor their complexities. For example, we have sermons, songs, and Sunday school lessons about Noah for his faithful courage and obedience in building an ark in the face of a divinely inspired flood. But we don't talk as much about what happened right after the flood when he got drunk and was found naked by his youngest son, Canaan, and decided in anger to curse Canaan's son, who was his grandson named Ham. Both of those stories are deserving of study. Faithfulness in the face of a flood and a disastrous moment of anger and cursing of his own family. Hold them together when talking about Noah and we get a fuller picture of the complexity of who Noah was. There are endless examples of these single story framings of characters in biblical scripture and I wish I had the time. I promise you I do. (laughs) But just quickly, can we go to just the Second Testament or New Testament as well? And, and, And dare I say, can we pull an example from scripture? Do you mind if I raise up for us Jesus? Yes, please. Who also has suffered under the violence of a single story? All right now. We'd need the rest of our lives to talk about all the miracles channeled through the Christ. But have you heard that story of Jesus cursing the Syrophoenician woman who was desperately begging him to heal her daughter? As she persisted in demanding that Jesus begging him to be the Christ and heal her daughter, Jesus, and if you have... If you have them on tonight, you might want to clutch some pearls. But Jesus called this woman a female dog. I'm not trying to rob you of your Christ. I'm just asking if your spirituality is seasoned enough to embrace the complex Christ that's not slave to a single story. My, My main point tonight, family, is that when we are able to sit in the tension of complex stories in the Bible that challenge the single stories that are always amplified, then we are better able to engage our own journeys and our own world. 
If I was back in my own pulpit in Baltimore, I would say that because some people can't handle the complexity of their Bible and handle the complexity of their God, then they also struggle to reconcile the complexities of their own lives. And walk around living bifurcated lives because they're not able to reconcile their complexity. How do I reconcile that I love the mighty clouds of joy and I'm still bumping notorious B.I.G. through the speakers of my car? Y'all told me I can't listen to that secular music, but there's something in me that's drawn to the mighty clouds of joy and Biggie Smalls. There's something in me that loves earth with me. Now, I, I, I came a little close, but let me come closer because I know we at Princeton. And, and I know you reverend somebody, you doctor somebody, you important somebody, you big I, you big you, I get all that. And your life is complex. Yeah. Yeah. And you get nervous if you pass somebody your cell phone and they look at your pictures. And the complexity of our experience is such that we are both people who are holy on Sunday and in need of help on Monday. Can we just be honest tonight? Because we too are enslaved by single stories that keep us shackled to a perspective of who people think we need to be, but then we're never free to be the people who God really wants us to be. And what if God wants you to be somebody who's fully free in all of your complexity? Uh, and that, that, that brings me to tonight's text. This text focuses on a biblical character that black Christian communities have loved for a long time. His name is Joseph. And I'm declaring tonight that Joseph is a victim of the single story. Black church spaces have a kung fu grip on one main story when it comes to Joseph. I can hear black preachers of my memory preaching sermons that about Joseph entitled, From the Pit, Finish It, to the Palace. His whole life is boiled down to that one summation. From the pit to the palace. That's the single story. And, and I understand why and how black Christians have clung so tightly to the single story of Joseph. I get it. Joseph has a life that in some ways mirrors and in other ways crystallizes a story, experiences, and aspirations of black people in the context of these so-called United States of America. Here in Joseph, you have somebody who grew up in a family fraught with problems endured backstabbing by his loved ones, was sold into slavery, was imprisoned by the Egyptian empire, and ultimately used his God-given ability to interpret dreams to propel him from Egypt's prison to its throne as governor, second in command to Pharaoh. This is a story that has been fuel for black people who have to wake up every day in a society that is working every minute for their annihilation. Yeah. 
We've needed this story of Joseph because Joseph gives us something deep down in the psyche of our souls that says, yes, you're going to struggle. Yes, you're going to cry. Yes, you're going to bleed. Yes, you might die. But if you hold on just a little while longer, then there will be a divine turnaround of your situation. And while you are down today, tomorrow you will be standing on your feet in the sunshine of your victory. We need the Joseph story. I get it. That single story of Joseph, though, ain't the whole story. And the reality is, pick your favorite black liberation civil rights leader and that favorite black civil rights leader, that favorite preacher in the black radical tradition, your favorite community group who gives you the profile and picture of what you want your life to become. And if you dig deep enough, could God have mercy? If you dig deep enough, you're going to find some stuff that's going to make you uncomfortable. Anybody ever had a mentor from afar? And as somebody, a role model you looked up to from a distance, and then life afforded you the opportunity to get up close on the person that you've been looking up to, watching their YouTube videos, reading their articles, going to their speeches, checking out their conferences, and but, 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 when you get up close on them, the view up close is different. Then the view far away. Something happens up close on people. And you'll see some things in your favorite role model that you won't agree with, you won't like, and that will hurt your feelings. What happened? That person been the person that whole time. They didn't change. But perhaps you had a romanticized vision in your mind of who they were supposed to be and you locked them into a single story. Joseph helps us and has helped us, which is why we got a kung fu grip on the single story of a Joseph who went from the pit to the palace. But tonight, I'm inviting you to get a little bit closer to Joseph. Tonight, I'm inviting you to scooch up a little bit and put your eyes on Joseph, who we've been celebrating for his colorful coat all these years. But there's another Joseph story that I want to lift up this evening. I love the story of going from the pit to the palace. I love the story of celebrating Joseph in the low moment of life, going to the seemingly pinnacle of power in his life, but I got a question. What's the point of celebrating someone rising from the pits of life and getting to a position of prominence in Pharaoh's palace if they're only going to extend our struggle, deepen our dilemma, and short-circuit our strivings toward freedom once they get the job? It's not good enough anymore to celebrate brown faces in high places if we're not also going to interrogate what they do once they gain proximity to political power. I knew I was going to lose some amens right up in there, but it's all right. I brought my own. What's the point in celebrating someone's rise if once they rise, they participate in your fall? That brings us to our text tonight. 
The Cliff Notes version of the story is that at the time of our text this evening, Joseph is in a position of power when a seven-year famine comes to the land of Egypt. He is the second in command to the Pharaoh. He achieved this position because he used his God-given ability to interpret a dream that God gave Pharaoh about this impending famine. Joseph not only interpreted the dream, but he offered Pharaoh a plan to guide him through this period of extreme food scarcity. Because of this, Pharaoh made him second in command over the entire empire. And here's where things get right. messy. Yes, because Joseph carries out a violent plan in the midst of a socio-political catastrophe in the nation. Joseph carries out land grabs. Joseph carries out the stealing and taking of livestock. Joseph carries out a plan and a program that does not empower the people, but it empowers the empire. He pushed a plan that did not serve the people. And the reality is, that many of our churches have been rightly accused of pushing programs that do not serve people either. We can be honest, your pastor ain't here, or you are the pastor. Come on, let's be honest together. Many of our churches have are guilty as charged for furthering programs and approaches to community that on the bumper sticker say we're here to help. But when you pop the hood and look down in that bad boy, it is draining the community of resources. It is stealing the community's best assets. It is posturing and positioning itself as the greatest thing in the community and everybody suffers but the church. Why is it that you can fly into so many black communities across the country and the nicest looking building on the block is the church? Every other house can be boarded up, run down, falling apart, bricks falling over, no trees nowhere, no park nowhere, people trying to struggle to get from home to work, from work to childcare, childcare to the store, the store back home, but the church look real pretty over there. Colorful windows, gold-plated thrones in the pulpit, parking spaces just for the members, taking up everybody's parking space every Sunday from 11 to 2 o'clock. The church look real good, but everything around it is suffering and falling apart. Some have asked the question, what is the church here to do anyway? Because it looks like the church is pushing a plan that does not serve people, but does serve the institution. Could God have mercy? Here's the reality of it. As I read this text, as bad as I wanted to look at myself as the freedom fighting black liberation theology, black Christian nationalist, as bad as I wanted to look at myself as the one on the side of the people. When I read the text, I said, Hebert, you're Joseph. Because you are in a position of power and privilege. And I hate to bump, I hate to pop y'all bubbles. 
but you're Joseph too. Anybody that can stand in enough privilege to take a whole week off to be at Princeton and spend the resources that you spent to be here sitting under a tree studying carpenter ants? Privilege. We're privileged. Your bank account says it. Where you live might say it. What you do for a living might say it. The time that you spend might say it. We Joseph. Find yourself, locate yourself in the Joseph that you are and the Joseph that I am. Nobody want to be the villain in the story. This don't feel good. Go back to the story with the colorful coat and Joseph. Because I don't want to think about myself as the one in closest proximity to power. But if we never face that ugly, if we never create safe space to confess our privilege, then we'll never be able to hear the cries of people beyond the palace who are saying, we need food. We got some work to do. Doing a self-assessment. In what ways are we like Joseph? Furthering the plan of the empire. Having a more culturally appropriate way to grab the resources of the people we left behind. Seasoning the same plans of empire, but it doesn't look like empire. So our people receive it because it comes from our hand. But at the end of the day, they still lose their stuff. In what ways are you Joseph? In what ways have you knowingly or unknowingly furthered plans and programs? Moved with such gusto for activity that you didn't stop and analyze, do a power assessment, listen to people, and develop an accountability team of people in the community that hold you to account to your position. This thing is messing with me bad. Lord have mercy. And it bubbles up just a few questions, and I'm done because y'all good and mad now. (laughs) Few questions, and I'm out your way. This scene of Joseph being in a key position and taking the people's money, then after that, taking their livestock, then after that, taking their land. And then after that, enslaving them, Joseph orchestrated the takeover. The Godfather in the Bible is Joseph. He took all of that stuff. And, and, the, and the question that bubbles up for me is, when I, when I consider this story, and when I sit with myself in any aspects of the Joseph-ness and the Joseph gene that lives in me and lives in you. 
I raise a few questions. As you are dreaming, writing, or managing and administering programs in your local community, who does your strategy serve? Joseph's strategy empowered the empire and impoverished the people. Joseph executed an extraction model, taking the resources out of the community and guiding them safely to Pharaoh's house. Who does your strategy serve? If you follow the train tracks of your program all the way down the line, when you get to the end of the line, who has the power? Who has the resources? Who is better off? Because what I find in Baltimore, and I don't know how it goes in your cities, but I find in Baltimore that many times programs that start with such glitz and glamour in the beginning, when you get to the end of the program, everybody's got what they wanted out of the deal except the community that was at the receiving end of the program. And the reality is there are too many people making money off of the misery of black people. Lord have mercy. I should have saved this for the final day and then got on a plane and got on out of here. But, but, but if, if, if we're going to tell the truth at a black theology leadership institute, the reality is there's a whole lot of money in managing the misery of black and poor people. You want to make money? Manage the misery of black and brown people. There's a grant somewhere with your name on it. A foundation ready to fund you. A news camera ready to come and put it, be put in your face. Yeah. An elected official ready to put their badge on your shoulder. Yeah. The question is, who does your strategy serve? But the second question is, what's the greatest potential of your current position? What's the greatest potential of your current position? The reality is that the plan that Joseph orchestrated was not the Pharaoh's plan. That was Joseph's plan. Pharaoh had a dream that a famine was coming. Joseph gave the plan on how to survive the famine. Joseph was the one that came up with the plan of taking everybody's stuff. Yeah. Pharaoh didn't demand that. Joseph offered that. The reality is in offering that plan, he offered a plan that did not reach the highest potential of his current position. He could have offered something else that would have been good for the community and would have been good for him. But instead, he lowballed his own ability. How is it that he was able to interpret another man's dream but won't help a whole community reach their aspirations and dreams given his position? My question to us, what's the highest potential of your current position? And I know how easy it is just to recline to the job description that you're given. We oftentimes start our positions with high and lofty goals. But over a while, the institutions and systems that we are entangled with have a way of beating us down to the place where we, satis we, we satisfy ourselves and we silence our spirit and we just doing our job. But in just doing our job, We'll keep on having what we've always had. Last question, I'm done. 
What do we define as winning? What do, you, what do we define as winning? In the final verse, after Joseph says, I've taken all your stuff. Here, take some seed. And when you take these Monsanto seeds, when you grow what you grow, Joseph says, give Pharaoh 20% of everything you grow. Then the people respond to Joseph, listen to this. You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be slaves to Pharaoh. What do we define as winning? What are we wrongly saying thank you for? What are we framing as a winning conclusion to a faulty planning program? Why are we saying thank you when it is our right to be there? Why is it that we're getting excited about being invited to a table not meant to really hear your voice, but just to capture your face in the picture for the annual report? And we post on our social media, I'm so glad I was invited. Sure, you were invited, but you ain't getting nothing while you were there. What are we wrongly saying thank you for? What are we saying thank you to programs that don't honor our grandmothers and our grandfathers? Why are we saying thank you for approaches to community problems that don't honor that our people have long figured that out? And instead of funding faulty programs and solutions that come from outside of the community, why not fund what my big mama said because she was right 75 years ago on the question? Why is it that we contort ourselves to Pharaoh's plan? And then just because we're in proximity to power, we say thank you. Thank you for making us slaves. Thank you for taking our land. Thank you for taking our livestock. Thank you for taking our money. Thank you for giving us these terminator seeds. Thank you for just allowing us to exist. What might this mean for the church? You notice in the text, I'm done. I really got to be done. It's getting dull. In the text, the only land that wasn't taken was the priest's land. Because the priests were on allowance from the Pharaoh. Because the government gave the priest money, the priest's land was safe. And nowhere in the text do you hear the priest saying anything because they got their land, they got their money, and they are safe and good, and nobody's bothering them. What might this mean for the church? How many of us are on Pharaoh's payroll? What it might, what this mean for pastors who live under the pressure? I'm trying to figure out how to do ministry in every book you buy, every conference you attend, and every YouTube video you watch says your church got to be this big. You got to have this kind of car. If you want to have effective ministry, lights, bells, whistles, smoke machines, and we sell our souls because they said this is the way to do church. How many of us, if we're honest, are on Pharaoh's payroll? 
How many of us are quiet? If you notice, not a priest said a word. How many of us are just a little bit too quiet while the community is suffering? This sermon and this message is messing with me. And I just feel good now that it might be messing with you too. And I pray that it keeps messing with all of us tonight. That we might sit with these questions and consider what it means for our ministries and what it means for our lives. God bless you.